Welcome to the second World Sepsis Congress. Over the next two hours, we will explore how to improve early detection and care. We have an awesome lineup of speakers, and the session is chaired by Vita Hamilton from Ireland. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Before we get into the session, let me introduce Beckman Coulter, our exclusive sponsor of Session 5. Beckman Coulter helps healthcare and laboratory professionals provide better patient care by delivering the accurate diagnostic information they need when they need it. Our scalable instruments, comprehensive diagnostic tests, and business management services are trusted by hospitals and their laboratories around the world. We share in our customers' mission toward continuous improvement and quality patient care because we believe that when efficiency and clinical outcomes are improved, patients benefit and we can move healthcare forward for every person. Thanks to Beckman Coulter for sponsoring the Second World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to Vita to get this session started. Welcome um, and hi. Um, this is the session five, Improving Early Detection and Quality of Care. My name is Vida Hamilton and I'm dialing in from Ireland. We have delegates from uh, approximately 145 countries around the world. And I would really like to uh, thank our sponsors for facilitating this great and accessible uh, Congress. In particular, I'd like to acknowledge our gold sponsor, Beckman Coulter, without whose uh, assistance uh, this Congress would not be possible. Our first presentation is on inequalities in sepsis treatment around the world. And I'd like to welcome Professor Flavia Mercado from um, Brazil. Uh, Flavia is Professor of Intensive Care at the Federal University of Sao Paulo. She's a founding member of LACSI and a leader in quality improvement and knowledge translation in Brazil. She's a member of the Surviving Sepsis uh, Campaign Guideline Committee, representing the low- and middle-income countries' perspective, and an executive member of the Global Sepsis Alliance. Uh, welcome, Flavia. Thank you, Vida. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, speak with you today, uh, and I, I will try to address a little bit of the inequalities that we have in sepsis treatment around the world. As we know, inequalities are everywhere, although heavily weighted towards the resource pool settings. It was already being nicely demonstrated, for instance, that in the United States, the incidence rates of sepsis and the mortality rates are higher in the underserved areas of South Carolina, and that patients, for instance, that don't, doesn't have health insurance often receive fewer interventions and also have shorter hospital stays and higher mortality rates. Some researchers have already reported that racial disparities might be at least partially explained by differential access to hospitals with a uh, lower quality of health. The socioeconomic status assessed, for instance, by the mean household income of the zip code in which the patient visited was associated with a higher risk of mortality even after you adjust for severity of illness. And the similar findings were found in Denmark, with lower educational status and income levels also being associated with a worse survival rate. However, certainly differences between high-income countries and low- and middle-income countries are the most shocking ones. 
And just a glance in these color maps can contextualize this. These are differences between the health expenditure in terms of percentage of GDP. These are differences in the healthcare access and quality index. These are differences in the under five mortality rates. And these are differences in healthcare associated infections coming from INIC, a consortium of more than 50 uh, uh, countries uh, assessing about almost 1 million patients in this country, showing clearly that differencing rates are completely are higher than in the United States. Also, in vaccination, we can find disparities. These are the vaccination rates for pneumococcal vaccine in high-income countries and in some middle-income countries that are eligible for this program from WHO. And these are the rates of vaccination in countries that are not covered by this program. So certainly, we should expect different mortality rates from high-income countries and our settings, the resource-poor settings. And the data coming from these settings are, unfortunately, very scarce. Recently, we had the publication of three important papers. This paper coming from China, where they access more than 21,000 uh, charts, and it might have been the presentation of this to today. And uh, they found around the mortality rates when you consider both patients with sepsis and septic shock around 55%. Recently, we had a one-day prevalence study coming from Turkey, also showing high mortality rates around 55 for sepsis and 65 for, shock, for septic shock. In our paper, the spread study, a one-day prevalence study, uh, including a random sample of 15% of all Brazilian ICUs. And our mortality rate were also very, round, very high, around 55%. There are too many aspects that are uh, impacts, both in incidence and in the outcomes of septic patients. Aspects related to the host, to the pathogen, to the healthcare system, and disparities are present in many of these this, this, uh, this factors. And they are different between uh, low and middle income countries. And they also are uh, responsible for uh, the difficulties in assessing all the data and the difference in data that we do have. We have also some important findings coming from Bangladesh. For instance, in this study, where they found in this cross-sectional study that the mean time from the onset of any symptom to the search for care to the arrival at the hospital was different if they were if you were poor or a non-poor person. And this difference, it's interesting to see that was not found in children. It means that we care more for our children, or they care more for, for their children. It's also interesting to see that among the poor participants, we are more likely to attribute this delay in searching for care to the lack of money, and they are also more likely to face catastrophic expenditure for their monthly intake uh, income. Access to resource are quite different among the world, and access to emergency department as well. This is a map coming from a study in 2009, and I'm certain that these numbers have already improved, showing that all in the all blue areas, you only take less than 30 minutes to reach an emergency department in the U.S. 
And this is the map published this year from Africa, where only in the very few green areas you can, uh, it will take you only with two hours to reach a hospital. In Brazil, we also have uh, differences in access. Although uh, in Brazil, healthcare is free for everyone, access is quite different if you are covered, for instance, by the public system or the private system. But anyway, even in our situation with this disparity in access to an ICU bed, we are much better than some uh, places, for instance, in Africa or in Asia, where you, you nearly have no access at all because you lack ICU beds. We also have uh, very different, many differences when you compare uh, quality of care. LASI is training hospitals in implementing quality improvement initiatives for the last 13 years, and we published the first part of our database recently. And as we can see, when uh, both private and public hospitals tries to improve, join us, uh, join us, and uh, what we can see is that only the private institution, you could see along the, uh, throughout the intervention that there was a reduction in the risk, uh, on the mortality rate. And in the public institutions, although you could see at the beginning a, a drop in the mortality rate, they raised back to the initial levels. One of the problems that we face here in Brazil, and I'm sure that we also face in other places in the world, is uh, as infrastructure and access to resource. In the spread study, we also ask about the uh, the presence of a simple resource that you need to be able to treat a septic patient. And we called a lower availability institution where they did not have at least eight, six of these eight items. And we found out that 32% of the public Brazilian institutions were lower availability ones. And we also found that being in a lower availability institution was associated with a 1.7 higher risk of death. But certainly, our situation in a middle-income country, in an upper-middle-income country like Brazil, is much better than the situation that we face in low-income countries for Africa, in Africa, for instance, where a simple thing like lactate in many places are never available. And the situation is also very critical, for instance, for the availability of infection control materials and disposal of infection waste like it is uh, showing on this paper. As you can see here, in some places in Africa, the availability in both in health, in, uh, health centers and even in hospitals for simple things as hand washing is uh, uh, nearly sometimes not available. And this is certainly very different, for instance, for what we see in, uh, in the ECMO uh, sites all around the world. The ECMO picture, it's a, a clear demonstration of the inequalities that we face in our, in our clinical care uh, world. And I think that um, sepsis, it's uh, just one more field where uh, we can see the equity dilemma. Should we focus our attention on developing this new high-cost diagnostic tools that uh, can help in the high-income countries or the new vasopressors when uh, lay people in Africa have never heard about sepsis and are facing uh, this limitation of resource? This is a very good question because in terms of equity, it is equally important to put our efforts in improving sepsis treatment in high-income countries 
by innovation and generation evidence, as it is important to generate evidence for simple and inexpensive therapies, therapies such as fluid replacement or strategies like quality improvement initiatives in these resource poor settings. The problem is that the global solution now that should be tracked along both pathways is clearly unbalanced towards the direction of the developed world. And I think that the shift is urgently requ uh, required. Certainly the new WHO resolution, it will help us to find again this balance. And we as a community are also responsible to find this balance. So in conclusion, we will not reduce inequality around the world, at least not as fast as it's needed. We need to improve our knowledge about sepsis and low and middle income countries. Solving this resource issue or the ED access or the ICU availability, it's not feasible either. But we can change bio, budget priorities. We can train the ward and emergency healthcare workers and sepsis recognition and adequate treatment. For instance, for, for this, we need to increase both lay people awareness and healthcare workers awareness, which is completely feasible. Quality improvement certainly is at this moment our best choice. And WHO resolution is uh, the biggest step forward that we had in this recent years. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Flavia. And we've got a couple of questions for you from the public audience. And um, do you think that there are other social determinants uh, aside from income, and um, that uh, lead to the um, increase in in sepsis in certain individuals? I think that the determinants for this are quite complex, and we cannot uh, simply say that it's social income. I think it, it, there is a cultural problem, there is a uh, uh, educational problem, and uh, here in Brazil, for, for instance, in our awareness study, where we, sh where we found that only 7% of the people have heard the word sepsis, this was clearly associated with educational level, which per se is also associated with income. But there, it's, it's, it is too simplistic to say that. I also think that there is a huge responsibility for our governments because we do need best vaccination programs, best basic care, uh, we need clean water, clean washing, uh, we clean, need clean water. I mean, there is a lot of basic things that our government needs to provide and certainly they are not providing. And Flavia, you mentioned that uh, in some studies in uh, low-income countries that sepsis was more common in adults um, uh, versus children. Could you just clarify um, exactly uh, what you meant by that? No, I did not. Uh, I were. did not say that. Uh, this was the Bangladesh study, and it is sorry if, if I uh, was too too, too quick uh, about this study. Uh, they found out there was a relationship between a difference between if you're poor or if you're not poor, the time of arrival in the emergency department was different. But when you look at the kids, there was no difference. Even if you are poor, you are taking care of your kids. And there was no difference between the time of arrival in the emergency department for sepsis kids. 
It's like uh, if I am sick, I'm not going to go to an emergency department because I don't have money and we're going to be very costly to have access to care. But if my kid is sick, I will do everything for him and I will go to the emergency department. I think that this is the major message of that study and it's, it's quite interesting, I think. And, and what do you think the higher income countries can do to help support lower income countries in improving uh, healthcare and in particular sepsis care? I think that one of the major steps is to work in partnership with uh, these countries and the people in these countries that are doing a good job. And we, ha we, are, we are seeing these initiatives already. I mean that, uh, I mean, societies or the groups like the African Sepsis Alliance uh, or we in Latin American Sepsis Institute. I mean, and it's good to have uh, the inputs for uh, the high-income countries. And we need research, high-quality research. And to do this together with the high-income uh, country people without any patronizing thing, I mean, really in a collaborative way, it's a very good way to do this. Another point is the grant, the support, the money to support research, to support quality improvement initiatives, and actually to support care. And we are aware about lots of uh, entities that are doing this. And I think this is quite welcome as well. As soon as it's provided together with local people, because we do need to enhance the local initiatives. The high-income countries will not solve the problem. They will help us to solve the problem. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Flavia. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So uh, we'll move on to the second speaker in this session. I'd like to welcome uh, Professor uh, Christopher Seymour from the US. Um, and he's going to talk um, about every hour uh, that counts, lessons from uh, New York State. Um, Professor Seymour is unique uh, in that he's a specialist uh, higher qualifications in clinical epidemiology. And his particular research interest is in developing diagnostic and prognostic models to facilitate acute care, uh, particularly during pre-hospital and emergency care. Uh, so welcome, uh, Christopher. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, at this great event. Um, so in this session on early detection and quality, uh, I was asked to talk a little bit about the lessons from New York State that have sought to improve um, our outcomes in sepsis through legislative mandates and implementing bundles across an entire state within the U.S. Uh, uh, across many hundreds of hospitals. And so we'll get started. Um, a few disclosures that the project we'll discuss today was funded by the State Department of Health. I have my own disclosures uh, listed there. And so the, the rationale for, for trying to think about if every hour counts, as was mentioned in the title, is whether time is in fact organ in sepsis and whether reducing the time to treatment, in fact, will change our patient's outcomes. This is certainly controversial. And the first few slides of this talk, we're going to go through why it's controversial, and then I'll try to show some uh, more recent data. And so we start off, of course, with our clinical practice guidelines here that have been endorsed by many professional societies uh, around the world. And they state that prompt treatment with antibiotics and fluids um, should be um, begun as soon as possible, and in particularly patients uh, with septic shock. 
Um, and yet this is supported, as shown in the red line, only by what was deemed a moderate quality of evidence, but yet with vigor uh, as a strong recommendation. Now, this was updated um, most recently a few months ago uh, to suggest that uh, antibiotics and a fluid challenge and these elements of a early care bundle should be administered to patients within the first hour, not just the first three. And although deemed aspirational, uh, this uh, is certainly quite a bit of effort that must be expended uh, for our patients. And so it begs us to ask the question, is there data and evidence to support these guidelines? Well, uh, we first uh, can just review exactly what's been most recently recommended. And so this is from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign website that says, we ought to be measuring a lactate, obtaining our blood cultures before antibiotics, administering those broad antibiotics, and then aspiring to uh, begin our 30 cc per kilo fluid bolus of crystalloid for patients with hypotension or elevated lactate, and to do this all within an hour. So we first would ask, well, gosh, that, that's a lot of work. Um, let's go through the data. And rather than starting with human data, I've shown here a slide of preclinical or animal data. And so this is work by Tony Lewis and Matt Rosengart, who are uh, surgeons here at the University of Pittsburgh, who have developed a fecal ligation puncture model of sepsis in mice, uh, but have done a few extra tricks. They've placed a wireless monitor in the peritoneum of these mice so that they could record the vital signs uh, of these animals in real time things like heart rate or temperature, and watch as these animals deteriorate. In doing so, uh, they then planned to administer the mice an early or prompt dose of antibiotics at the moment the animal got sick versus waiting two or four hours later until there was significant deterioration, and then measured a variety of readouts that included cytokine, serum lactate, and survival. And so what we see on this slide, moving from left to right, is just a graph of the heart rate and temperature curves in, uh, in sort of beat-to-beat -beat data of mice uh, who have received early antibiotics in the blue, which tend to stay higher, uh, and animals who received later antibiotics, again, these were randomized mice uh, that otherwise were identical, uh, that had a lower heart rate. And it's worth noting that in mice, after an infectious or sepsis insult, that bradycardia or a low heart rate is a bad thing. Now, we also see then on the right-hand panel that um, lactate and IL-6 measured at 24 hours after the CLP, we see that early antibiotic uh, mice or those treated promptly had lower lactates and lower IL-6. This is hypothesis generating that in an animal model, gosh, these early antibiotics within that first hour may be doing a good thing. And then when they looked at the Kaplan-Meier curve of survival of mice, of course, they all died. But if you look at the median survival, take the 50% on the y-axis and draw a straight line across, you'll see that the survival curve in black, which was the promptly treated mice, is about twice as far over to the right, meaning they survived on average twice as long as those animals who were treated with antibiotics after a four-hour delay. So this is compelling and would suggest that at least in the preclinical space, early treatment within the first hour may be beneficial. Of course, there's quite a bit of controversy in our human data. Uh, here on this slide is a screenshot of a meta-analysis of a variety of observational studies that have asked the question, do administration of antibiotics within three hours of a patient arriving to the emergency department improve outcomes compared to patients administered antibiotics after three hours? And in this forest plot, you see an open uh, diamond at the bottom, 
that's suggesting there, there may be an increased odds of death among patients treated after three hours, but this did not reach statistical significance. There, of course, as to date, is no in-hospital randomized clinical trial of antibiotics and or fluids early versus late. Um, and this brings about an issue of causal inference. How do we know for certain uh, that there's a direct relationship between these early um, treatments and their outcome? Well, you may ask, gosh, there was this recent paper in the, in the Lancet family of journals that's uh, called the FANTASI trial. They actually randomized patients here to receive antibiotics early versus late, and they did so by leveraging the pre-hospital system of care. In this Dutch trial, patients with two or more SIRS and suspicion of infection were administered a broad-spectrum antibiotic by the paramedic before arriving to the hospital. And you see the conclusion here, and I've not put up the Kaplan-Meier curve, but it was a neutral trial in that there was no difference in survival. Uh, and despite the fact that antibiotics were, in fact, given markedly earlier in the course of care uh, among the patients treated by EMS or emergency medical services compared to those who were treated at arrival at the hospital. And so we don't have a conclusive answer here. Physiologically, is anything differently happening to the patient if that antibiotic or fluid bolus is administered early? Um, and it's stoked by editorials written by uh, Mervyn Singer and many of his uh, other colleagues who will point out uh, that this notion of each hour counting in the um, care of our septic patients may just be um, sort of recursively amplified over and over again, and that we keep telling ourselves this is the right thing without any proof. And in fact, as shown in these uh, screenshots of his uh, editorial piece, uh, on the right, it said the raw data are heavily adjusted statistically to deliver this evangelical message. These are strong words, but they're calling into the fact that regression models are often used uh, to adjust for the indication bias inherent to the question. And what that means is that sicker patients tend to get treated earlier, but yet sicker patients also tend to die more. And so when we study this in existing data sets all around the world, we may inappropriately conclude that early treatment or early antibiotics is actually associated with death. When it's not really the drug causing the problem, it's the fact that just sicker patients tend to die more. Okay, so what do we do? Well, around the time this controversy is swirling, uh, there was a tragic case of a 12-year-old boy named Roy Staunton, who's, uh, who's well-known, I expect, to this audience, uh, that galvanized broad policy changes in the state of New York, such that there was a mandate legislatively that a three-hour bundle of care be provided to all septic patients who arrived in New York hospitals as of 2014. These protocols that had to be present in every emergency department included a three-hour and a six-hour bundle, which is shown on the slide. This gave us a nice natural experiment in which to really tease apart the question, does the timing to administration of antibiotics, fluids, and completing this bundle, in fact, associate with a reduced in-hospital mortality among septic patients? Now, there's important caveats about this paper that, that we'll note. It was published in the New England uh, last year. Um, and it only studied patients in the emergency department, and it only studied patients who all received the bundle. So everyone got the recommended treatment. We just asked, does doing so at hour one versus hour two, excuse me, or hour three versus hour four improve the outcome? It had only tested patients who received uh, a diagnosis of sepsis within the first six hours, and these were not patients who had nosocomial infections. Okay. So a little bit more about the methods here. The primary outcome was in-hospital mortality, and the primary exposure or the intervention that was measured uh, is shown in these bar charts. 
where the time from sepsis diagnosis or the initiation of a protocol was measured until the time a blood culture uh, was obtained, an antibiotic was administered, or a fluid bolus was completed. There was a variety of sensitivity analysis that adjusted when the time zero was for measuring these windows, um, but the primary analysis, again, focused on from the moment sepsis was recognized. These data were all recorded and sent to the New York State Department of Health. There was a variety of auditing that was done uh, that's described in the appendix of the manuscript. I'll not get into those details today. Okay, well, who were the patients? There were 50,000 patients. Uh, as you can see in this table one, the majority of them completed the three-hour bundle elements within three hours, almost 80%. The red arrows are highlighting some statistical differences between those that did and did not complete the bundle. Uh, there was uh, a bit of a difference in age and burden of comorbidity, which tended to be higher among those patients um, who did not complete the bundle. These were not clinically significant, but didn't reach a statistical significance. Okay, so what actually happened? Uh, this is a cumulative probability plot, which is basically just showing, moving from left to right on the x-axis, what was the time and hours from when sepsis was recognized until these elements were completed. And that you see on average, the three-hour bundle shown in the purple was completed in 1.3 hours. Antibiotics were administered within one hour. And on average, the fluid bolus was completed at 2.6, as you might expect a bit longer. Okay. But after adjustment for a variety of confounders and all of those things that we can measure in the data set that identified sicker versus not sicker patients, completing that three-hour bundle was in fact associated, uh, was associated with an improved outcome. And said a different way, if you didn't complete the bundle, you had a 1.04 odds ratio for in-hospital mortality, such that for every hour increase it took to get all of these steps done, there was a 4% increase in your odds of in-hospital death. Okay, the forest plot then is showing a variety of subgroups and how they map to different uh, conditions, such as site of infection, uh, comorbidities, and the presence of shock or not. And interestingly enough, although not powered for these tests of interactions, uh, patients uh, had consistent associations if they were on vasopressors and if they had gram-negative infections. All right, now odds ratios are often uh, a bit difficult to interpret and even have a hard time explaining these to our patients but we all can handle risks a little bit easier. And so from these models, we can predict the risk of death for patients uh, for each hour it took to complete these bundle elements. And that's shown in these plots where the bundle is in gray, the time to the completing of the antibiotics is in blue, and the time to completing the fluid bolus is in uh, the far right in the orange. Now, the most significant associations here were in the first two plots completing the entire bundle and administering the antibiotics. We're moving from left to right. The longer it took, the increased risk or predicted risk of your in-hospital death. Interestingly, in hypothesis generating, this was not the case for completing a fluid bolus, that should you have completed your bolus at hour four versus hour two, there was no change in your outcome. Now, you might ask yourself, that paper's now a year old. What's new in this space? And in fact, uh, Dr. Idris Evans, who's a pediatric critical care fellow here at the University of Pittsburgh, has a nice follow-up paper that was just recently published in JAMA this summer. This was focused on the pediatric cohort in which there's been substantial controversy about how to resuscitate these patients with sepsis and septic shock, particularly after the FEAST trial. And in this paper, uh, I've only shown one slide, but there was a similar relationship between the time to completing what was a one-hour bundle in children with sepsis and its association with outcomes. 
this one hour bundle included administration of antibiotics, obtaining a fluid culture, uh, blood culture, and administration of a fluid bolus. What's not shown and what's very interesting and will likely be discussed further is that the completion of each one of these individual elements themselves was not associated with outcome at all, but it was only when completed together. I think in general, we would view these results shown on this slide as consistent with the data in the adults, although there's a variety of caveats uh, we can discuss. Okay, so the conclusions at this point, um, in that in the ED, the time to complete the three-hour bundle and uh, providing prompt care is in fact associated with death, and that there's findings across multiple other locations and in the pediatric cohort in New York. There's some limitations that, that this is not a randomized trial and that there are still no causal inference uh, to satisfy the cri uh, critics who we mentioned at the beginning and a variety of caveats about limitations to the study. Um, we'll wrap up here by just with the following implications. Uh, that time matters uh, stemming from this data among our emergency care patients with septic shock. I think the burden is on us as researchers and in our community to explore ways to develop causal inference, perhaps in trials, and in particular to focus on the issue of fluid therapy, which may not be as timely or as important in all patients as we previously had thought. To that end, there may be predictive phenotypes that we could focus on, thinking about different locations in which to test these treatments, and certainly trials like the CLOVERS trial, which is ongoing, will help, uh, help us generate a larger evidence base. Um, and with that, we'll wrap up. I'd like to acknowledge the folks on this slide for their contributions to the work. I'm interested in your questions. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Christopher. Um, we just have time for, for one question. And, and the big question is, people are really concerned about the feasibility of completing this uh, one-hour bundle um, early. And I note from your slide that it wasn't the time of ED admission or arrival at ED that corresponded to the time of initiation of the bundle. So what, what, are, what is the context um, in terms of uh, arriving at triage um, and then uh, being diagnosed and starting uh, the bundle um, and then completing the bundle within That's right. one hour? A very important distinction, and I'll just give a brief answer as I know uh, the session needs to move forward. Um, the paper in which we've discussed today and the research uh, has focused on time from sepsis recognition to completing of the bundle. It is true that in some sensitivity analysis, we've looked at from time arrival to the hospital. But in a bit of a, a disconnect, our clinical practice guidelines have focused on time of arrival um, in order uh, to just make the, uh, what they would suggest the implementation easier. However, uh, implementing an, uh, a bundle with a very quantitative and straightforward start time um, actually places, as you mentioned, a very large burden on emergency rooms and emergency room teams to get all of these steps done so quickly. Um, I think, as has stated in the, in the final slide there, there's still a need for us to develop causal inference or have a trial in which patients are randomized to these different strategies to the best we can within standard of care. And I think additional pre-hospital trials, like being done in Toronto uh, with Damon Scales, um, and is being planned probably in the UK uh, to address these questions are much needed. Uh, thank you, Christopher. We're going to move on to our next session, which in a very timely way is uh, about the key role of emergency medicine. And I'd like to uh, welcome Dr. Luis Garcia Castrillo Resigo from Spain. He's president-elect of the European Society of Emergency Medicine, and his research interests include severity models, 
and the dissemination of structured uh, of the structured management of uh, the sepsis patient. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Good evening uh, to everybody. And uh, today, my presentation, what I'm going to do is to go through the key role that plays the emergency medicine uh, section uh, regarding the treatment of septic patients. But before we go to the specific uh, area of treatment uh, of patients on the emergency department, I would like to briefly uh, have a, a provide an overview of what is the situation of emergency medicine in, in Europe. As you can see in the slide, uh, the countries with the specialty are colored in blue. So we can say that although the specialty is really new uh, in Europe, it was born in 1972, actually it's being recognized in 23 of, 20 of the 28 uh, European Union uh, countries and also is present in 28 of the all European uh, countries. Uh, the speciality represents the, the importance and the relevance of this activity in our health system. Uh, another aspect that is very important is uh, what says the curriculum of the emergency medicine speciality in Europe. The European curriculum specifically says that emergency medicine is a speciality that focus on the initial assessment and management of patients from all age groups and under all circumstances who are potentially suffering from time-sensitive conditions. And probably sepsis, for sure sepsis, is included in this group as it is uh, acute coronary syndrome, severe trauma, or poison patients. So this is a, a specialty that uh, looks for this type of, of, of problem. Sepsis is one of our objectives. Another important thing is to, is to take in consideration that uh, for uh, the European Society, uh, emergency medicine includes uh, the EMS system, so that is the pre-hospital activity done, uh, also the uh, triage, and also the, hospi the hospital management done on emergency department. So it is considered like a system, not only as a specific point of, of care, and this is important to, to consider. Uh, Probably all of you have this uh, information, but I would like to go through it again. Uh, most of the admissions, and I will say that uh, depends on the organization of the health system, goes to the emergency department. The figures on the slides uh, have a big variability, mainly to, due to this variability in the organization of the health system. Uh, what is really clear is that th this activity is increasing annually uh, all over the world, and it's a common problem for all of us. Uh, the other thing is how many septic patients do we see in our uh, departments, in our ED departments? And this is uh, difficult to answer because we have problems in definitions, we have problems in coding, and we have problems in administrative records. But uh, we can provide an estimation of uh, in between 1 and 4% of all the visits to uh, the emergency departments in urban areas can be septic patients. So this is a, an important number of patients that can be considered in this group. But those patients are, can come from two different populations, and this is important to recognize. Uh, if we take in consideration the population of patients uh, seen in the intensive care units with the final diagnosis of sepsis, 80% of them, they come from the community. And 20% of uh, the rest of them, 20%, come from hospital wards. But we can also split a little bit 
deeper, this differentiation in, in these two populations. Those who come from the community, that we can call it community archaeosepsis, can be in between the figure that we have there or 62% that it is in the, in the slide, because there are also another group, those that they have health community archaeosepsis. Those patients are patients that are being treated by uh, the health system due to whatever the condition is. It is very frequent in the oncologic patients that they receive treatment, but they, are, they stay at their yeah. uh, home. Uh, that they are different from those who acquire the sepsis being admitted in the, in the, in the hospital, that the real figure can be estimated in 11%. So we have these, these three groups coming uh, to the intensive care uh, units with final diagnosis of uh, septic patients. The other important thing to consider, and probably has been discussed here, is that uh, sepsis as an evolving condition uh, is not always present when uh, the patient comes to the emergency department. You can see this estimation that 85% of the septic patients that arrive to the emergency department, they can be diagnosed there having sepsis. And his mortality is close to 12%. But there is another group uh, estimated in 50% of the septic patients that when they come to the hospital, they don't have or they cannot be identified as septic patients. And they uh, develop the sepsis being in the hospital, in the emergency department or in the wards. And their mortality is much higher. And this is very important to consider. It can reach 35%. So these are these two groups with different mortality that should be considered. Those who come to the hospital with a diagnosis of sepsis and those who adhere the sepsis after the emergency department uh, visit. Now let us go to the role of the emergency physician after having this general information. Of course, the identification of the sepsis is the key aspect and the more difficult one. But the emergency department, the emergency physician, has also to do estimation of the risk of death, the risk of progression, as we have seen. And this can be an evolving situation. The severity can increase in the following hours. And the need of a special resources of care, like the intensive care unit. So it's not only establishing the diagnosis of sepsis, but also being able to establish the different risks that we have mentioned. Uh, what happens if uh, the patients uh, bypass the emergency department and are admitted uh, directly to the hospital wards? Well, we have this information from this population that we can see here in the slide. It's a big population, uh, 80,000 of uh, admissions gone through the emergency department and 18 uh, uh, non-admissions, uh, uh, non-emergency department uh, admissions. So this is a big population. And we can see that in hospital mortality is higher in the group that goes directly to the uh, hospital wards bypassing the emergency department. The, the mortality, those going through the emergency department, it is estimated in 17% and 90% those who go directly to, to the wards. This can reflect the, the activity done in the, the emergency department and the importance of, of this phase of, of treatment. It also, uh, the result is also affected, as in many other conditions, by the size and the experience of the uh, emergency departments uh, that provide the care. That is why the uh, urban uh, hospitals have better results than the, than the rural uh, hospitals in, in general. 
The key problem and the key role of the emergency physician is to identify the, the safety patient. But the problem is that uh, uh, still there is a lot of subjectivity in the definition. Uh, we uh, look for uh, infection as the driving uh, force of, of the diagnosis of this, of this condition. Uh, and uh, this can be uh, difficult to, 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 to identify due to the uh, subjectivity of this uh, definition. The other, the other leg for the, for the diagnosis is the normal vital signs and, and the biomarkers. But the, the, the main difficulty is the subjectivity of including infected patients in, in, this, in this group. The new definitions still keep this uh, subjectivity and probably SOFA and QuickSOFA uh, is, are not helping uh, too much in, in this because the, the, the scores are more oriented to the severity than to identify uh, septic patients. And this is important to take in, in consideration for future uh, developments. Uh, what is the effect? How uh, is uh, the emergency department uh, affecting the, the, the results, the, uh, mainly looking to the mortality? We have seen in the previous slide that if you bypass the, the emergency department, the, the mortality is high. If you, the patient is admitted directly to the, to the ward, uh, the, the mortality is high. And this is another study that reflects the same thing. For those going uh, through the emergency department, the in-hospital mortality is 17, and for those going directly to the wards, the mortality is 18. So the role of the emergency department is clear, reducing uh, the mortality in this group of patients. It's also important the, the role of the emergency department taking the right decision. We can see this in the next uh, study. It is a court of uh, 657 patients admitted to the intensive care unit with the diagnosis of sepsis. And uh, we can see that 51% um, uh, of, of them were admitted directly to the uh, intensive care unit through the emergency departments. 37% were initially admitted to war and from the war back to the intensive care unit. And another 11% were misdiagnosed in the emergency department and sent home and they have to come back to the hospital and admitted to the intensive care unit. And we can see that the mortality is lower if the patient is identified in the emergency department and sent to the intensive care unit. Uh, is 29%, uh, but if the patient goes to the war and then have to go back to the intensive care unit, the mortality goes up to 42%. And the, if there is a misdiagnosis, the mortality is much higher, close to 60%. So we can see the effect of uh, treating patients in the emergency department looking to these figures. Sometimes the patients stay in the emergency department for long times due to different uh, reasons. Uh, and we can think that the uh, period in which they can, they stay in the emergency department can affect the results. And we can study this in this court, again, of patients admitted to the intensive care unit with the final diagnosis of sepsis. The court includes 287 uh, patients. And uh, they were divided in two groups, those who stay in the emergency department less than six hours and those who stay more than, than six hours. Uh, and uh, the final uh, conclusion is that there was not difference. They were not able to demonstrate difference uh, in between the, the two groups. Um, and also, the compliance with the bundles was very similar with three-hour bundles, 
sepsis protocols were very similar in the two groups. So longer stays, if the patients receive the proper management and treatment, don't affect the final result uh, in, uh, in the uh, mortality of the, of the patients. Uh, as we have said, we are, in, we are interested in the pre-hospital uh, sector uh, because uh, in, in this specific uh, condition, sepsis, half of them, they arrive to the uh, emergency department through an EMS system, uh, so they arrive by ambulance. Uh, and it has been done a lot of efforts uh, to create uh, tools that help the people working uh, uh, on the pre-hospital, uh, doesn't matter if they are paramedics or they are doctors, de depending on the systems, for identifying uh, these uh, septic patients. They have been uh, using uh, different tools. Uh, the most classic ones are the Robson or the BAS. The BAS is very classic in which uh, they look for patients with less than 90 uh, millimeters of mercury of uh, blood pressure, more than 30 uh, uh, respiratory uh, breaths per minute, and uh, less than 90 in the pulse oximetry. With these uh, uh, tools, they, they try to identify the, the patients and uh, try to establish um, rapid uh, uh, application of the of the bundles and also alert to the to the emergency uh, department there is not information regarding the utility of this of these systems but probably in the future due to the facility of having other tools in the pre-hospital setting like the lactic acid or the entitled co2 or the ultrasound we can uh, go further and identify more precisely this population of patients uh, and uh, the, the actual situation has not been able to uh, produce any publication in which they have demonstrated that the early use of antibiotics in the, in the pre-hospital setting provides uh, any benefit. So this has not been demonstrated since now. Uh, but it's clear that a good pre-hospital management can make a profound change in the sepsis outcome. Let us go to other area of the uh, emergency medicine activity, the sepsis uh, at triage. The early recognition of septic patients by the triage nurse is a real challenge. And again, a lot of uh, effort has been done in this, in this ratio. But it's clear that the, whatever the triage score is used, whatever the triage system is used, uh, the, the, the triage demonstrates the, the association with high triage points in septic patients uh, regarding uh, admission criteria and also mortality of these of these patients. Uh, it is it is uh, very well known that uh, uh, systems like the national early warming system or the modification early warming system has a high sensitivity, but is not very specific for the most severe cases, levels three and four. There is a, a positive like the ratio. Of three for the uh, uh, four, sorry, for the level three, and uh, and six point four nine for the level four. But uh, this is not a universally uh, implemented in every emergency department. Uh, there is a big variety of um, GS systems uh, all over Europe. So again, there is not uh, enough information to introduce these these uh, systems. In many departments, many GS. Uh, 
uh, sections, they have implemented checklists that helps the identification of the septic patients. Most of these checklists include mental status, glycemia, pulse oximetry, heart rate, respiratory rate, and modest skin. And if there is more than three of these criteria, further evaluation is done and the suspicion of a septic patient is established. And uh, it has been also established codes, uh, sepsis codes, uh, different ones uh, running all over Europe, uh, alert tools, sepsis skills programs, etc. All have been uh, demonstrate efficacy in identification of the patients, but still there is not a uniform model that we can recommend to, to apply. But we have challenge, and uh, uh, the main challenge is the problem of the recognition. There is an important delay in the recognition uh, of the septic patients. It is estimated by different studies that the delay can reach the figure of 200 uh, minutes with a big standard deviation in between the time the patient arrives to the, to the uh, triage and uh, when the, the patient is uh, finally diagnosed. Uh, but uh, as you can see in the slide, the time after the recognition to apply fluids or to uh, apply antibiotics is really is really short. So the problem is in the recognition uh, mainly. Another important thing is that uh, from from these studies we can uh, identify that uh, less than twenty percent of uh, the patients receive all the elements of the three bundle uh, recommendations, and this is a, a very low uh, figure. So we have to work in, in the direction of improving this, uh, this number. Um, we know that any intervention that, this, that has been established, education, checklist, uh, case studies, etc., they all uh, reduce the, the times for identification and improves the, the level of uh, application of the, of the bundle. So this is a way of working with this. And uh, finally, the, the management. It's very well established what uh, are the elements, the key uh, elements of the bundles. The surveillance services campaign has established uh, uh, clear, uh, clearly five uh, elements of, of treatment, probably discussed extensively in this, in this Congress. I am not going to go through it. And I am only going to go in my final slide to an amplification of this uh, uh, five uh, treatments that uh, can be applied or should be applied in the, in the first hour. Uh, the sepsis six includes the urine output. Sometimes this has been discussed because it depends on the time the patient is on the, on the, on the emergency department, but sometimes it's for longer periods. So, so, so to take care if the patient is producing urine or not is important thing, but mainly in this slide, what I want to, to present is the, uh, uh, the evaluation of, of the uh, uh, importance of applying the bundles uh, using uh, a way of comparing in between different treatments. The, the number needed to treat uh, is 4.6 for the bundles uh, during the first hour. Uh, and if we compare 4.6 with the number needed to treat, for the treatment of aspirin in heart attacks, that is 42, and for the PCI in STA uh, acute myocardial uh, elevation, that is in between 45 and 90, we can see that uh, it's worth 
to, to use these this bundles because we save more lives. And finally, I would like to make some closing, closing remarks. And I will say that the familiarity with the time critical management strategies place uh, the emergency physicians in an optimal position to initiate quick and effective intervention in sepsis. Uh, the second thing that I would like to, to stress is that the, the emergency department information is needed to really evaluate the burden of sepsis. Actually, the figures that we are producing are really blurry and uh, we need uh, more accurate information about what is going there. And the tools for evaluation should be created and validated in uh, the emergency settings. Otherwise, we are using tools created in other areas and uh, not validated in the emergency department. This is very important. And uh, the other ones of three hours or six, uh, sepsis six recommendations has a positive clinical impact and we all have to fight for making this more, more, uh, more uh, applicable and uh, more uh, used everywhere. And thank you for your attention. I am ready for, for your questions. Thank you for that tour de force. Uh, we just have time for one very short uh, question. Uh, what do you think about uh, using a Q-sofa at triage? I have mentioned briefly the Q-sofa. And uh, the, the thing is that, uh, in my opinion, Q-sofa is designed for identifying severity. And I think it's a good tool to identify those severe patients that will need immediate transfer to intensive care units or they have to be very aggressively treated in the emergency departments. But for identification of septic patients, uh, I think that there is a still need of further look for other tools that help us in, in identifying the patient. Thank you. Uh, we move on now to um, our fourth speaker, uh, Professor Ruth uh, Kleinfeld who is a past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is going to talk to us about uh, nurses holding the key to quality in sets of care. Welcome. Great. Well, thank, thank you so much. I most appreciate the opportunity to be part of this global session in my short time today to really highlight the role of the nurse uh, in sepsis identification and treatment. I have no disclosures as it relates to the content. And I'm sure that all of us uh, can acknowledge the importance of early recognition and identification of sepsis. Uh, we can have the best protocols in place if we're not activating them. Patient outcomes obviously will not be optimal. So as really a key member of the multi-professional team, nurses play a significant role, not only in watching for signs of sepsis in terms of monitoring vital signs and looking for physical exam, changes, but also in terms of implementing the ordered sepsis treatment measures and then evaluating the response to treatment. You know, it's been said that the nurse is in a unique position because they're able to identify the earliest signs uh, of sepsis. When we look at the literature, there are indeed examples of some nice initiatives that were nurse-led as part of the multidisciplinary team that have targeted sepsis care. Some of those have really focused on the, those initial steps in terms of identifying sepsis. There's examples of sepsis protocols in the literature that allow nurses to, once patients meet criteria, obtain blood cultures and start resuscitation. There's also examples in the literature of unique and novel roles for nurses, such as serving on sepsis teams 
sepsis alert teams, uh, you know, looking to, again, identify ways and measures to manage patients early on. Some of these have focused care in the ICU uh, in terms of changes in patient care. Some have focused in the emergency department to look at bundle implementation. And some have looked at nurse-led protocols for specific measures, such as decreasing the time to antibiotics and having goals that the data is given to nurses so they can see their progress over time when implementing some of these interventions. And certainly, there's other examples that highlight that nurses do play an important role. Some of these studies have highlighted the nurse's key uh, role in looking at obtaining lactate levels, time to antibiotics time to screening patients, time to notification of sepsis teams, so certainly an important component as we look at managing patients with sepsis. We've also had uh, guidelines that have come out of the sepsis guidelines specifically for nursing care that, again, have highlighted early identification and prompt response to patients needing further follow-up for sepsis. This is just one example of a nice study that actually had several different components, but really highlighted the role of the nurse. They focused a lot on an educational campaign and training of the nurses. They created a sepsis screening protocol, and it really focused on having the nurse uh, do screening on admission uh, onto the floor, uh, and every 12 hours, uh, protocols were then put into place for the nurses to obtain blood cultures before antibiotics and then start fluid resuscitation. And another goal was really antibiotics within one hour of recognition as well. And with the use of nurses and nurse practitioners as a secondary level, they were able to increase screening of patients uh, in terms of their several-year study. In addition, they were also able to impact sepsis-associated mortality rates as shown here, their sepsis-associated death rates decreased from 29.7% in the pre-implementation period down to 21.1% after implementation. But certainly one thing to note is that it took them several years to achieve this progress. So one of the things that the World Federation of Critical Care Nurses has strived to really assist nurses with worldwide is awareness of the signs of sepsis and what are nursing responsibilities for managing uh, patients with sepsis. And they highlight in some of their publications that certainly it's part of a teamwork, but nurses can be champions in leading some of these initiatives. And looking at these uh, champion performance improvements not necessarily conducting research, but putting in place a quality improvement initiative to look at ensuring successful adoption of the guidelines, to make sure that guidelines are discussed in different venues, such as on rounds and in conferences, and really ultimately putting as a priority for nurses the early identification of sepsis. And we see this in a number of publications as well. Krista Shore is one of the nurse champions who has really done a lot of work internationally, and she's highlighted some of the ways that nurses can make a difference in sepsis care. Her and her team actually led a multi-hospital quality improvement program that was targeting nurses as the cornerstone of the program with nurse-led checklist-based uh, screening. There were 60 sites that were involved in four different regions in the United States. And they really focused, again, on nursing education and screening. They had not only a paper copy, but also for those organizations that have electronic medical records, one of the options was an automated screening tool to be used in the electronic health record. 
to look at signs for sepsis and to prompt screening of patients as well. But one of the things I like about Krista's work that she highlights here is it's not just the nurse's role in screening patients. It's their role in communicating appropriately the urgency of the circumstances. And so highlighted in the literature is communication tools such as the SBAR for effective communication. And this slide just gives an example. Certainly, the nurse's role is to report changes in the patient. But looking at using something like effective communication tools, really highlighting the facts and communicating those clearly to the physician or the treater that they're responding to, paints a more clearer picture of the urgency of the patient's circumstances and that nurses can then put into motion the interventions that need to be put into place for sepsis care. So targeting sepsis as a performance improvement metric has really been a focus of care. And as Krista highlights in this example, the nurses really are at the center of our protocols and our guidelines by looking at what are the needed educational process to put in place, how can we evaluate processes of care to put things in, in and to improve those, how nurses can be involved not only with data review, but taking that data to put it back to the staff nurses to say you're improving your time to screening, you're collecting your blood cultures better, but we still need to improve our target times. And so that's a key component as well. So certainly some priority areas for nursing care as we look at uh, improving care for patients is the notion of looking at it as a medical emergency. I think that is really a, an awareness that we have seen come forward providing sepsis measures in terms of nurses looking to involve nurses as part of sepsis teams, ensuring that they're aware of the sepsis guidelines, looking at opportunities to involve nurses in improvement initiatives, promoting patient and family-centered care, and also looking at just basic nursing measures uh, to prevent infection, to even influence the rates of infection for certain patients. Some of the areas that the World Federation of Critical Care Nurses has also focused on is application of screening tools to low-resource countries. There was a publication this year in Connect in our journal by colleagues in Uganda who really highlight that in under-resourced countries, we can really look to adapt some of the learning and educational needs that we have found for nurses globally to improve care for patients in those areas as well. And lastly, ensuring that nurses are aware of the resources that are available through the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and resources that are specific to nursing education as well. So I do most appreciate the opportunity to spend a few moments today to dialogue with my colleagues in terms of the role of nurses. As past president of the World Federation of Critical Care Nurses, we're most pleased that we were able to join the Global Sepsis Alliance in 2010 as one of the founding organizations and certainly know that nurses play an important role in sepsis and our challenge is to make sure that nurses globally are aware of best practices. Thank you so very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Kleinfeld, for a very compelling uh, presentation. And there's no doubt that the, the role of uh, nursing in sepsis uh, recognition and management is um, absolutely essential. Um, I suppose, and this applies to all of our presentations, um, one of the things we have to take into consideration is balancing measures. So uh, things like compliance with antimicrobial guidelines and uh, total uh, antimicrobial consumption rates. Um, have you um, 
studied uh, the impact of uh, nursing input into the uh, compliance with local antimicrobial guidelines, for example? Yeah, good question, you know, and I think globally we're concerned about overuse of antibiotics. Um, when we talk about nursing protocols, we're finding that in some areas, advanced practice nurses, such as nurse practitioners who are ordering providers, play a role in ensuring that appropriate antibiotics are ordered for patients. Certainly in many countries, nurses as bedside nurses are not able to order antibiotics, but ensuring that they're aware of the appropriateness of antibiotic administration to patients and to maybe perhaps question if uh, they perceive that antibiotics are being given for a long of a period, you know, ensuring that on rounds, nurses are active participants to question and ask in terms of discontinuing antibiotics. I think all members of the team you know, have a role in ensuring that appropriate antibiotics and care for all aspects of patients with sepsis, you know, are carried out. Yeah, and many um, hospitals have uh, dedicated uh, nursing resources for sepsis to help enhance sepsis awareness and um, improve management. And uh, what do you think about dedicating that level of resource in a smaller hospital, uh, for example? Well, you know, it's actually a role that we've seen evolve in the last 10 years, uh, having nurses as sepsis coordinators, having nurses on sepsis alert teams, and it really is not dependent on the size of the organization. I think every organization can improve their identification and management of patients with sepsis. So certainly looking at the return on investment for having a dedicated nurse uh, be a sepsis surveillance uh, quality and improvement uh, person or serving on sepsis teams or having a sepsis alert team really does make a difference. And having organizations look at the impact that those initiatives make, not only on decreasing mortality rates, but also on length of stay, which essentially some organizations have identified, you know, has been a cost savings to the organization as well. And there's some uh, increased interest as well in the, the work that you were doing in Uganda. Could you um, maybe uh, uh, give us a little bit more information on uh, what your aims and outcomes were from that work? Yeah, that was actually, I was not involved with that, but Connect is the online open access journal of the World Federation of Critical Care Nurses. So Cliff Asher Algia uh, was a is a PhD student there at Aga Khan University in Uganda, and with his colleagues, they published an article this year looking at nursing practices for the management of sepsis in low income countries, specifically in Uganda. You know, and highlighted some of the ongoing work that they're doing uh, to target nursing education, nursing screening, uh, nursing awareness. Uh, you know, really trying to elevate the role of nurses as a care provider in the management of sepsis. So that article is open access and connect, which is the World Federation Journal that's available on their website. Thank you. And um, have any of the studies of nursing interventions that you've discussed um, provided information on warning scores uh, or the recognition of sepsis um, that demonstrates um, the earlier identification of patients with sepsis? Well, there's been a number of, of uh, interventions that have been tried. Uh, one was looking at a sepsis power hour where they were looking at a nursing-driven protocol uh, using early recognition of sepsis. There have been some, as you've mentioned, that looked at early warning scores. 
the study that I highlighted that was conducted uh, in Houston, Texas, they looked at screening patients based on uh, signs of sepsis, both in the medical record, but also in terms of a nursing-led protocol. So I think there's a number of examples in the literature. I think one of the things that Cliff highlighted in terms of the nursing care in Uganda is we have a lot of resources, but we have to be able to identify the ones that can be most appropriately implemented in an organization. So I think it's beneficial that there are a number that organizations can pick and choose to see which is most feasible with uh, considering the constraints and the resources within an organization or within a country. Um, okay, well, look, thank you very much uh, for that. I'd, I'd like to add, we, we have uh, sepsis nurses here in Ireland, and in uh, some of our centres, we have 100% compliance uh, with antimicrobial guidelines, thanks to their input. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a, a really, really important aspect of uh, sepsis management. Um, I'd like to uh, now move on to our next speaker. We're returning to Slavia in Brazil to discuss the limitations of QSOFA for early detection. Hi, um, very nice to be here again and to speak for for you now about QSOFA. And uh, I will focus specifically on uh, the limitations of QSOFA for screening for sepsis. As uh, we are all aware about, QSOFA was a severity score suggested uh, to predict among those patients who have suspected infection, those who will deteriorate or will need intensive care or will have a higher risk of death. And it is composed by two components, the respiratory rate higher than 22, altered cognition, and the systolic blood pressure lower than 100. And a patient is QSOFA positive when he has two of these three components. I think that the major problem came not from the suggestion that QSOFA should be or could be a severity score, but rather from this picture, where it was uh, suggested that QSOFA might be used also to detect the presence of sepsis in patients meaning that if a patient is QSOFA positive, you should screen for the organ dysfunction, although certainly a patient who is QSOFA positive already have organ dysfunction. And if the SOFA score is higher than two, then you can make the diagnosis of sepsis. Although the authors clearly pointed also that even QSOFA negative patients under the suspicion of, suspicion of sepsis might need further assessment for the organ dysfunction because of these pictures. Many uh, emergency departments and wards all around the world, and here in Brazil especially, start to use QSOFA as a screening tool for sepsis, not considering that there is a huge difference between a severity score and a decision-making tools. Decision-making tools cannot be only based on rocky curves. We know that decision-making tools need to be sensitive when we are dealing with a deadly disease like sepsis. And uh, although only considering QSOF as a tool for non-ICU patients, uh, we could see that the, uh, the, the studies that were published after the first JAMA paper all of them suggested, or almost all of them suggested and really demonstrated the low sensitivity of QSOFA to screen for sepsis. So as we are really worried about uh, the change in some hospitals in Brazil 
uh, in their screening strategies for sepsis, we ask the hospitals in our network to collect data for us. Uh, LASI is a uh, non-profit organization that is focused on many aspects of sepsis in Brazil, but also on quality improvement. So we do have hospitals that collect the data for us, and uh, we send them quarterly reports of their performance in a way that they can improve that performance. So we ask them to collect QSOFA for all patients that they, they put in the database. But we specifically ask them to see if the patient had QSOFA not during the whole ICU stay or during the uh, after ICU admission, as many of these papers had already done, but rather only to look at the QSOFA components 24 hours prior to the sepsis diagnosis or at ER admission and prior to the sepsis diagnosis. In our database, we, uh, we included patients under suspicion of sepsis, and we have two cohorts. Patients with suspected infection, including those with sepsis and septic shock, and on a second cohort where only patients with sepsis or septic shock were included. After one year of collecting this prospective data, I am uh, now going to present to you this, uh, the results. These are still unpublished, but as you can see, this is a huge database. This uh, 74 institutions included almost 11,000 patients. And as I said, we have two cohorts. This first cohort are uh, coming from hospitals that are able to include not only patients with sepsis and septic shock, but as I said, also all patients with suspected infection, even those without organ dysfunction. As the workload for this is too high, uh, as you can see here, we mainly have patients coming from private institutions, and almost 95% of these patients are non-ICU patients. And what we found briefly in this database is that 72% of all patients, 78% of all patients were QSOFA negative. And I think that the most important thing, it's not that the fact that most patients were QSOFA negative, but that the mortality rate of this QSOFA negative patient was 13% for those patients who had one component of the QSOFA present, and even those patients with no component at all present have a 5% mortality rate. The sensitivity of this, uh, this score for the screening for the sepsis uh, for mortality under this patient was only 52%. And as you can see, these mortality rates are completely different from the original mortality rates reported by Seymour in the JAMA paper, showing again that tools that are developed or are built upon database coming from high-income countries might not clearly uh, be uh, successful in our countries as mo our mortality rates are much higher. But I think that the most important uh, uh, message is that it's a still a good severity score. It was reasonable to, pre to predict among those patients with suspected sepsis, those who will die. Although, as I said, the sensitivity was very low. But the most important analysis that we did, uh, the most important fact, is that these QSOFA components are not new 
We have been using this as screening tools in Brazil since the beginning of LASI uh, quality improvement process. The QSOFA components are actually only uh, simply the components, the organ dysfunctions that our nurses and our doctors can detect clinically. So this is in Portuguese, of course, because it's a triage, the screening tool from LADI. But as you can see, hypotension and reduced level of conscience or tachypnea, desaturation, dyspnea are the components that we use for 13 years now to screen for organ dysfunction. And any of these components can trigger a sepsis protocol. Of course, we also use a most sensitive strategy in those hospitals that can deal with this based on the presence of those source criteria. Another analysis that we did in our database was on the second cohort, which is the most severe uh, patients are, as uh, it is only uh, uh, with patients with sepsis and with septic shock which means with organ dysfunction. This came from 22 institutions. We also have 5,000 patients in this cohort. Most of them are non-ICU patients. And here, yes, we do have public institutions. 24 of these institutions were public ones, which means that they, they will represent more nicely what really is happening in our country, as certainly the reality in our public institutions is different from the reality in the private ones. And as you can see, among patients with organ dysfunction, based on the criteria used by the surviving sepsis campaign, which includes hypotension, hyperlactatemia, and uh, the other single dysfunctions, among those patients, 62% of them were QSOFA negative. Again, showing that this too is not sensitive enough to detect life-threatening organ dysfunction. And as you can see here, among the patients with QSOFA, uh, with one component of the QSOFA present, present, you can see that the mortality rate among our public institutions is 40%. And the mortality rate among patients with no component at all of the QSOFA present is 34%. Which means that we have 62% of the patients that were QSOFA negative, and their mortality rate in the public institutions is unacceptably high. Even in the private institutions, patients with QSOFA negative, QSOFA 1 or QSOFA 0, has a very high mortality rate. What are the strengths of this uh, study? Certainly, one is that, that we prospectively collect the data in a middle-income country. It is a multi-center study, and all the QSOFA components were collected only before the diagnosis of sepsis was uh, performed, because this is the right way to assess a screening tool. As I said, many of the studies did assess QSOFA during the whole emergency department stay, and if you don't have a patient that is QSOFA, positive before the diagnosis of sepsis, and he will deteriorate, it's high, there is a high chance that the real, he will become QSOFA positive during the emergency department state. Another strength is that we have uh, a data collection uh, performed by very experienced data collectors, as these were the case managers of the LASIN hospitals network. Of course, there are limitations. We did have... Uh, uh, we might have problems with uh, data because we did not monitor that data. 
And uh, we did not have data about ICU admission as one of our second, secondary outcomes. I did not show this data, but one of our secondary outcomes was uh, ICU admission after uh, 24 hours. Uh, we already have uh, some uh, systematic reviews about QSOFA. This one is, uh, was published in Annals of Internal Medicine uh, recently. And as you can see, they reviewed 38 papers in the literature, and they also found a very low sensitivity to QSOFA. And some of these hostels, as I said, did not collect QSOFA prior to the diagnosis of sepsis. So they concluded that QSOFA had a poor sensitivity and actually only moderated specificity for short-term mortality. And they also... Uh, uh, concluded that the first criteria had a sensitivity that it's superior to the QSOFA, supporting their use for the screen of patients and as a prompt for treatment initiation. Of course, SIRS would have a lower specificity than QSOFA. So in conclusion, QSOFA cannot and should not be used as a screening tool because it lacks sensitivity. The use of any of the components of QSOFA would improve sensitivity. I did not show this data, but we did analyze what was the sensitivity of QSOFA using only one component, as we did with uh, the presence of any organ dysfunction. And the prediction with the any organ dysfunction is better than the QSOFA, as it is the sensitivity. QSOFA is actually, and we should regard, look at it as, it as it is, as a severity score. It is useful to focus our attention to a patient because he would have, would have a higher risk of death. But this is only if you hadn't paid attention to him before, which, which you should have done. Because when a patient becomes QSOFA positive, of course, you might have had too late to help him. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Flavia, for some really great data. Um, can I just clarify, um, am I correct in saying that the QSOFA was never developed as a screening tool for sepsis diagnosis, that it was always uh, developed as a severity indicator? I think that it's very clear in the paper, in the original paper of JAMA, that it was developed as a severity score. The problem is that when they put the picture, which suggested that QSOFA can be used as, as a ruling tool for sepsis, which means if a patient is QSOFA positive, think on sepsis. That was the original thinking about that figure. However, I think that the figure uh, was a mistake because it induced a lot of people to use uh, uh, QSOFA as a screening tool. We have been hearing the authors of QSOFA speaking in major conferences and repeating that QSOFA is not a screening tool, that QSOFA is a severity score. So I do believe that um, although uh, the paper, it's uh, confusing, uh, it was not the first intention. And actually, you cannot validate a screening tool using rocky curves. You do need uh, decision-making studies and not rocky curves to validate a screening tool. 
uh, thanks, Flavia. And uh, you said, okay, you need your decision-making uh, uh, tools. Um, uh, have you anything in particular that you could suggest that would have a set better sensitivity? I don't think that it's a single answer for that and not a single answer for a single country. And I don't think, I think that each institution has to seek for his own instrument. Some institutions, those that can handle a very sensitivity Sensitive, very sensitive, sensitive to can still work with such criteria. We have many institutions in our network that is still make triage in the emergency department using search criteria and pick up out of the line every patient that has those search criteria. And this is good for the patients and for the institutions if they don't have a very, very busy ED. If they have a very busy ED, they have to uh, screen for organ dysfunction, but not for the presence of two organ dysfunction like the QSOFA suggests. So in LASI, we do have many screening tools. We have screening tools based on search criteria and we have screening tools based on the presence of organ dysfunction because it will depend on how the institution organize themselves. And in the world, it is it's the same. You can use screening tools based on search criteria in MUSE, in NEWS, and in any organ score. It depends on what you're going to put your focus on a, a most sensitive, if you use a very sensitive tool, you're going to prevent sepsis because you're going to treat infected patients very early in the course of the disease. If you use a less sensitive tool, you're going to detect sepsis earlier. And this will only prevent the most severely, severe forms of sepsis, but will not prevent sepsis. The only way to prevent sepsis is to treat infection earlier. Thank you very much, Flavia. We move on to our next uh, presenter, Professor uh, Edgar Jimenez from the US, who's going to talk to us about automated sepsis alerts and rapid response teams. Um, he's a founding board member of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and you're very welcome, Professor Jimenez. Well, thank you so much, and good afternoon, good morning to everybody, depending on where you are around the world. It is a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Um, one of the things that I think is very important is that uh, a lot of the people that conceive the Global Sepsis Alliance are participating in this World Sepsis Congress, and I'm very happy about that, as it happened as part of my tenure as uh, president of the World Federation. I have no, let me move here have no disclosures to make. Um, we're going to talk today, as we have very little time, do uh, a high-level review of the uh, approach to early alerting and uh, early interventions in sepsis. And I want to bring to you, uh, towards the end of the talk, a very important concept, which is something that mentioned uh, Ruth Kleinpel a little earlier, which is the role of uh, having a true alert traffic controller, someone with experience, a nurse that would allow us to be a little more assertive in determining what really needs to be addressed or not. The world as a baseline, as we see it uh, usually, you know, we're all used to this map, is, is a great place uh, for a bunch of people, but some others have very significant challenges. As we see here, and this is a geomorphic uh, representation, uh, rendition of what happens in the world, which was mentioned on Flavia's first conference. I'm very sensitive as I originally came from a, a small country. 
in in uh, low to middle income where you can see that there's quite a discrepancy uh, of the expenditure in public health and also the mortality on the one to four year old population, which is um, very serious throughout the world. And, and like I said, I'm very sensitive to that. As we move forward, we have also significant other challenges. I mean, even in spite of uh, education and many other things, people still live in remote areas. And we have seen that about 15% of the people in high-income countries live um, about an hour away from uh, cities of over 50,000 people. But that in low- and middle-income uh, countries, it may be up to 65%. Connectivity has grown very significantly. This is just what has happened in 2015, and this uh, world mapper comes from WHO and some other agencies reporting, where we can see that the connectivity has increased, and that's kind of a good hope in areas, for example, in the subcontinent and in Southeast Asia, in Asia in general, and we have seen a resurgence of significant connectivity with internet connections and hopefully uh, digital networks that will allow better education and communication and support to areas that were isolated before. And we have seen that increase in places like Africa. Now, uh, unfortunately for early alerting, I mean, we need computers. And the computers can do a fantastic job based on the algorithm, but it's very important to keep in mind that it is costly and requires technology. And we have seen, for example, this is the uh, electronic health records adoption worldwide as of 2013. In the United States, we have seen an increase in the use of these um, the records um, as part of the CMS, the Medicare offices that have almost made mandatory the transition to this alertness. And again, in countries that have the resources, that will be very fruitful but it's something that is very challenging in, in areas that have more limited resources. In terms of warning, as Flavia was mentioning too in her previous talk, uh, it is important to keep in mind that sometimes we have very limited warnings and that uh, they're, whether they're present or not makes it uh, maybe very sensitive and not very specific. We would like to see and have a little more uh, input in what happens with our science with if we could see trends, because I mean, that can probably give us a much better picture of what's going on with our patients. And that's why graphicking these uh, conditions may be very important. And we need to start thinking about human interfacing, about how uh, these alerting systems would talk to humans or would notify humans or when something's going on. Because most of the time you start having, uh, you know, over-alerting and fatigue and other things that make useless these situations. But in a condition like this one, it's very important that you, you could have some graphicking or some better human interfacing that would allow to see trends and move motions of the patients' health throughout their stay in the hospital. And the reason why we talk about that is precisely because, as was mentioned in the previous talk by uh, Dr. Garcia Castrillo, I mean, you would have patients that come from the ED about 85% of the time, and 
we have very high pro level professionals there that are, you know, very sensitive to what's going on with their sick patients that are showing to the ED. And there are patients that may not be as overt and as evident that they're so sick, may end up being, as they evolve into wards, that will eventually manifest themselves as significant sepsis patients. And those populations, as this is a publication from last year from Michael Rodman and Mitch Levy and Bill uh, Dellinger, show using a, a database from the Methodist Hospital and uh, Sarasota and Riverdale Regional VA, shows that definitely these two populations behave very different. Where you have, uh, you know, a, a patient population that has uh, present on admission sepsis and has different levels of mortality compared to the one that manifests later in the hospital. And the idea is then to have a system that detects an urgent need of the patient and that this urgent need will allow us to develop a trigger that hopefully is going to be seen by someone and that will give a response activation that would allow us to get, like Ruth was saying, um, a rapid response system or a sepsis team that will come and address the patient to solve the crisis. But this requires, very importantly, data collection and administration and someone that hopefully coordinates this. But we have a problem. We are humans, and humans, unfortunately, we are very different. We have different personalities. We are very variable in expertise at the bedside and also in our human nature, we're very imprecise. So we have different physical capabilities. We round numbers, we estimate, we cut corners, you know, and we fade with our responsiveness with time. And that's what we call alarm fatigue. So that this great variability, you know, we need to start thinking about the quality of the data and the principle of GIGO, which essentially introduces to garbage in, garbage out. We have seen in many presentations of sick patients that we have used, uh, for example, algorithms and coding systems that will give us a numeric number where people are supposed to respond. And even though we have had this, and this was an interesting study that we participated with Reynaldo almost some years ago, we found out that our patients, for example, when they were scoring urgently in, with numbers of more than three in this electronic warning system. Of 211 calls that were more than five, there were only nine rapid response system calls. So it is worrisome that we failed to respond. And another one of the important thing is that of 13,000, 14,000 patient entries, you can see that the respiratory rate was 20 per minute. I mean, if they would breathe like that, everybody would be blowing off the windows from the hospital. In any case, our imperfection and imprecision, still as we pay attention to the patients, like it has been mentioned before in several presentations, the Kaplan-Meier showed that just paying attention to these patients and understanding that they may be deteriorating in an early phase changes their mortality in the up to 50 day. And now uh, there have been attempts which are unfortunately limited to some of the patient to the communities that don't have enough resources to try to do that entry of data in a more precise way by many devices. That means, unfortunately, are costly. 
But using, as Flavia was saying, like EWS or news, uh, even with man manual entries, people can start looking at things like the SIRS data. And this is a study from Matt Chirpak that shows how the SIRS are just as relevant as news and QSOFA in detecting deterioration outside the ICU. And you'll see this study also from the Rodman Index that showed that, you know, intelligent databases, I mean, and algorithms can identify these patients uh, earlier on. There's even uh, the group from Johns Hopkins um, uh, that have are working with Peter Pronovos, where they can see that the truth, they have a new database that can hopefully will be able to help these patients. And there are hope also in some of the um, private uh, efforts, you know, where you can see how algorithms like the insight can be seen with interesting areas under the curves to predict all these patients that are in deterioration. So important enough is that also we should probably learn how to classify these patients uh, and um, tag them as patients that are higher risk when they come from uh, an environment that have seen antibiotics in the previous seven days. So patients that have had clinical contact 45% in this study from you show that 45% uh, of the patients that came with severe sepsis uh, to the uh, EDs had been seen in, within the last seven days and prescribed antibiotics in the community. So all of this, what do we want to have? We want to have a system, an algorithm that is alert, that gives an alert and that hopefully runs in the background is sensitive and specific, and hopefully as we have more technology available in our world, will be more available for people throughout. But the important thing is to keep in mind that we need an air traffic controller, an alert traffic controller in our groups, which would be someone that could be looking to monitors and deterioration on patients and see if this is a true alert that can go and be held uh, or assessed in a more judicious way. And the most important part of someone that works in this area is uh, to have a nurse, most likely, what we have used, and we're going to have to skip a few slides in the future, but a nurse that will have advanced cardiac life support, that will have a, a FCCS training, and that would have no competing responsibilities and is truly dedicated to decide whether these alarms are important or not. We did a study a few years ago that showed that this kind of intervention and increases tenfold the connectivity between the experienced nurse and the bedside nurse that may be uh, someone with less experience. And we have seen how the proactive, which is in the light bars, has increased when we were testing this in a 300-bed hospital. And we can see that the intervention was very similar to what was said before and needed number needed to treat of four. For every four interventions, there was one that really needed uh, an intervention to improve this patient's conditions and this decrease the length of stay and the escalations of unplanned ICU admissions when you have this proactiveness. We have challenges ahead and our challenges is that as our population grows and it becomes less, um, uh, you know, it's larger. I mean, we also have less resources to support that as we have challenges in our medical and nursing schools. 
So for some of our problems and is distances too, and we have plenty of this in Texas, and we have areas to cover. Our system, for example, covers uh, about 35,000 square miles or 89,600 kilometers, which for you, uh, just to let you know, is about the size of Ireland. And we have a bunch of hospitals there, and we need to support them. So this is just my few slides to finish. We have had um, uh, the adaptation of robotic support from hospitals that have uh, very uh, experienced people to hospitals that have very limited resources. And there's even Dr. Danesh, who has been a collaborator of mine for many years, has even with the University of Texas in Austin using one, using iPads, that has worked really well, obviously trying to minimize cost and provide that expertise. So this is my last slide, and just to uh, reaffirm that we need good quality of data, otherwise the algorithms don't work. We need to, them to be uh, have data integrity, and we need an ATC, which is our alert traffic controller, someone with experience that can minimize the traffic of alerts that overwhelms and may cause alarm fatigue in the bedside personnel and that would allow to have a more conscientious response to um, the patients, you know, doing, and, and have that number needed to treat of one to four that I was mentioning earlier. And with this, I really appreciate your time, and I thank you for your um, support uh, to the Global Sepsis Alliance. Okay. Thank you, um, Professor Jimenez. So um, what you've outlined, uh, Professor Jimenez, um, are very, uh, are relatively new ways of working. How can these be balanced with the old principles of continuity of care, the patient-physician relationship, and perhaps the newer principles of shared decision-making? Well, there have been um, a couple of publications, small publications, that have shown that patients uh, are be becoming used to this. You know, when the, even if you don't have a flesh and bone physician or a nurse at the bedside, I mean, they appreciate experience and having someone that can make a difference in their outcome. Um, there's always, always the novelty that comes with it, you know, when people are used to it. And I think that as we move into the 21st century, this is going to become more prevalent. Uh, and hopefully as resources become more available, even in a very modest form. But this definitely has uh, been seen. and, and nurses and patients at the beds, I feel very supportive when you have experience, even though if it's an electronic form. Great. And you mentioned alarm fatigue. Is there any particular recommendations for how to manage uh, alarm fatigue? I think that with the study that we did in this smaller hospital, which is a 250 plus bed hospital, we had a very good report in general uh, because the algorithm was giving information to someone with experience that would be able to detect if there needed to be an intervention and go to the bedside and assess that patient. So instead of having the nurses being at the bedside, being bombarded with all these signs and things and algorithms and what we call best practice alerts, I mean, actually there was someone that would filter that and would make it even more meaningful when that intervention was happening. Thank you. There's been quite a lot of uh, interest uh, in, and questions about procalcitonin and uh, does it have any role in uh, 
early recognition of sepsis are are there tools that include um, broken serotonin as as part of their screening? Are, are you aware of anything like that? No, I, I have not seen that. I mean, I know there there have been people looking at it, but most of the uh, focus on these uh, algorithms has been on vital signs and, and some clinical deterioration, like, for example, uh, scores about patients' mobility and ability to interact with the environment. When they start deteriorating with that, I mean, they... they uh, they can be signaling that they're getting in trouble when they don't want to get out of bed, when they don't want to eat. That may be something that very subtle will be indicating a potential problem more than the procalcitonin, which is unfortunately is, it has to be drawn and is maybe a lab test, right? Yeah, great. Listen, thank you very much indeed. And we'll move to our last speaker of this session, Professor Charles Sprung. And um, uh, Professor Sprung is uh, well known to uh, intensivists and has coordinated many uh, very large multinational trials. And he's going to talk to us today about uh, lactate for de the detection and management of sepsis. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So uh, as noted, I'm going to be speaking about lactate for the detection and management of sepsis. Um, in the early 1970s, Max Harry Weil and his group showed that Elevated lactate levels in ICU patients are associated with an increased mortality. In fact, lactate levels uh, as low as 2.7 were associated with a 50% mortality. Now, it's important to remember that serum lactate is not a direct measure of tissue perfusion. Increases in serum lactate level may represent tissue hypoxemia, accelerated aerobic glycolysis driven by excess beta adrenergic stimulation, or other causes such as liver failure or even beriberi. Delays in lactate measurement with delayed antibiotic treatment has been shown to increase mortality in patients with intermediate or elevated lactate levels. And in a recent study in CHEST showed that in their single study, single center study, that close to 3,500 adults with severe sepsis and septic shock admitted from 2008 to 2016, had lactates measured within the mandated window 32% of the time on wards, 55% in the ICU, and 79% in the emergency department. Patients with delayed lactate measurements demonstrated the highest in-hospital mortality of 29% with increased time to antibiotic administration. Patients with initial lactates greater than two millimoles per liter demonstrated an increase in the odds of death with hourly delays in lactate measurements. Now, the surviving sepsis campaign bundles, which uh, were published in 2012, included in their bundles to be done within three hours of lactate, showing us the importance of lactate. In fact, in the most recent one-hour bundle, which was just published in Intensive Care Medicine, these parameters were to begin immediately, and again, lactate was included. Now, initial lactate uh, has been associated with mortality independent of organ dysfunction and shock admitted to patients in the emergency department with severe sepsis. 
single center studies done by Mickelson in Critical Care Medicine published in 2009, in 830 adults admitted with severe sepsis in the emergency department found a 28-day mortality of 22.9% and a median serum lactate of about 3. Intermediate lactate was defined as 2 to 3.9 millimolars per liter and high serum lactates as 4 or more millimoles per liter. And both of these were associated with mortality, not only in the shock group, but the non-shock group. Adjusting for potential confounders, intermediate and high serum lactate levels remain significantly associated with mortality, even in the non-shock patients. Now, lactate clearance early in the hospital course is also associated with a decreased mortality rate. And lactate clearance means a decrease in the lactate from the initial lactate level measured when the patient's admitted uh, to uh, in, in the paper published by Mugen in Critical Care Medicine in 2004 to a lactate measured six hours later. In this single center study of 111 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock in the emergency department, in-hospital mortality rates were 42% with a baseline lactate of about 7. Survivors compared to non-survivors had a lactate clearance which was much higher, 38%, versus 12% in the non-survivors. There was an approximately 11% decreased likelihood of mortality for each 10% increase in lactate clearance. Now, lower plasma lactate clearance is at 24 and 48 hours after the initiation of, of treatment is associated with a higher 30-day mortality. In a study by Chernoff in the Journal of Intensive Care in 2016, lactate values measured at 24 to 48 hours after the initiation of treatment were collected in 229 non-surgical septic, severe septic, or septic shock patients. Patients were divided into two groups, clearers, those with lactate clearances 31.6% or more, or non-clearers, those with lactate clearances less than 31.6. The adjusted odds ratio of mortality was lower in those patients who cleared their lactate, and also the vasopressor requirements were much less in those patients, again, who cleared their lactate much sooner. In a study by Lee, published in 2015, lactate clearance at discrete time points seemed to be more reliable as a prognostic index than initial lactate levels in severe sepsis patients with lactic acidosis. In their single center study of 109 patients with severe sepsis and lactic acidosis, their seven-day mortality was very high, 72%, and survivors had lower follow-up lactate levels at an elapsed time after their initial lactate levels. A decrement in lactate clearance of at least 10% for the first 6, 24, and 48 hours of treatment was more prominent among the survivors than the non-survivors. Now, Rui, in just a few months ago, showed that both lactate and lactate clearance are useful in patients with septic shock defined with the sepsis-3 definitions. They had more than a 1,000 septic shock patients defined by the sepsis-3 definitions, which meant the lactate levels greater than 2 millimoles per, per, millimoles per liter and the use of vasopressors. In this single center study, they compared the prognostic value of both lactates and lactate clearance 
at six hours after septic shock recognition. Their 28-day mortality was 25%, and survivors had lower median six-hour lactate levels and higher lactate clearances than the non-survivors. Lactate and lactate clearance was associated with mortality after adjusting for confounders, but in this study, as opposed to the previous one I described, lactate had a significantly higher prognostic value than lactate clearance, and that may be related to a sicker population using the sepsis-3 definition. Now, Casserly, looking at the surviving sepsis campaign database, looked at elevated lactates and found they were associated with a higher in-hospital mortality. Only patients presenting with lactates more than 4 millimoles per liter and without hypotension were significantly associated with in-hospital mortality. This database had more than 28,000 patients from 218 sites. Significant mortality increased with the presence of hypotension with serum lactates more than 2 millimoles per liter. And on multivariate analysis, only lactate values more than 4 with hypotension significantly increased mortality when compared to the group with lactates less than 2. Now, there have been several randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses evaluating lactate-guided resuscitations of patients with septic shock. I can't go into all of them, but a significant reduction in mortality was seen in lactate-guided resuscitation compared to resuscitation without lactate monitoring. I will discuss one of the studies, Janssen in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine in 2010, in ICU patients with Increased lactate levels on admission, lactate-guided therapy significantly reduced hospital mortality when adjusted for predefined risk factors, and they also found improved important secondary endpoints. This was a multi-center randomized controlled trial of 348 ICU patients admitted with lactate levels three or more, and in the lactate group, treatment was guided by lactate levels with the objective to decrease lactate by 20% or more per two hours for the initial eight hours. Their control group had regular therapy, only observing the initial lactate level. When adjusted for predefined risk factors, hospital mortality was lower in the lactate group, and also the lactate group had lower SOFA scores, inotropes could be stopped earlier, patients could be weaned from mechanical ventilation earlier, and patients were discharged from the ICU earlier too. When we look at the sepsis-3 definitions, they decided to use the definition of septic shock, which would give a higher mortality, those patients with hypotension and increased lactate levels, and the mortality was about 42%. It's important to note that even those patients who have low lactates, less than or equal to 2, and normal blood pressures still will have a significant mortality, 25%, when they have organ failure. I'd just like to end with some data from Mervyn Singer looking at mortality and lactate levels depending on where the measurements are made. Looking at an emergency department population, those in the process, promise, or arise studies with lactate levels that were higher in the range of 4 to 7 millimoles per liter um, than ICU patients, had a lower mortality, somewhere in the range of 10 to 30 percent, 
as opposed to those ICU patients in studies such as SOAP2, Albius, uh, TRIS, and others, where the lactate levels were in fact lower, one to four, but with higher mortalities. So what I've tried to do for you is describe various studies that show the importance of lactate for the detection and management of sepsis. Thank you very much. And thank you, Professor Sprung. Um, in this era of um, concerns about excessive fluid resuscitation, um, can you offer any guidance as to when you should stop trying to correct a lactate with fluid? Um, is there any uh, data to help support um, decision-making in that situation? So as I demonstrated, there have been studies uh, showing that using lactates uh, to monitor treatment and trying to decrease those lactates with fluids and or vasopressors have been shown to improve uh, survival. So not many people use these uh, parameters, but I think we probably should be using them more often. Okay. And uh, so what do you think then, uh, just uh, as a sort of a, a final bottom line for the pra uh, practicing clinician, what are, what are your uh, rules uh, for, for using lactate? So lactate is extremely helpful, even if the patient is not septic, just giving you a pretty much ballpark figure of how severe the problem is. And as I showed, it's not only the initial lactate, but it's also what happens to the lactate over time. And for the practicing clinician, if you see the lactate decreasing, that's a good sign and your therapy is probably working well. If, however, the lactate is not decreasing, and certainly after about six or eight hours, it probably doesn't pay to keep pushing all those fluids because there are data suggesting that patients who get a lot more fluids have an increased mortality. So if the lactate after several hours is really not decreasing, it probably does not pay to keep pushing the fluid. Thank you very much for that. And this comes to the uh, end of session five. I'd like to thank all of our speakers and to thank all of our participants. And in particular, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors. It, it wouldn't be possible uh, to um, uh, run this Congress uh, without them. And um, we're very grateful for all of their support. Thank you. And I'd also like to bring to your attention uh, the uh, World uh, Congress has developed a, um, a global quality measure survey. This is a completely anonymous uh, survey that will take about eight to ten minutes to um, complete. And it's really important for us to be able to gather information on how sepsis is measured and treated around the world and um, so that we can advance our cause and help uh, influence uh, key decision makers in um, improving um, support for uh, sepsis recognition and uh, improved care uh, globally. And, and once again, um, I'd like to draw your attention to our sponsors. And thank you very much, everybody, and uh, good evening. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the sixth session, Importance of Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers, next Thursday. We hope you tune in again. See you next week.